Welcome to Sharp Talk. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Alberto Alemano. Alberto Alemano is a professor of European law at the HEC Paris and global professor of law at the New York University School of Law. He's also the co-founder and director of The Good Lobby, which I'm sure he will talk to us about in more detail during the course of this podcast. Alberto, you have a new book out called uh, Lobbying for Change. The title is very intriguing. Uh, you make the case for something called uh, Citizens Lobbying. So what is Citizens Lobbying? Citizen lobbying is about uh, citizens um, picking up a cause they deeply care about. It might be uh, LGBT rights or animal welfare or environmental protection. And then uh, rely on the repertoire that usually corporate corporate lobbyists and and lawyers and other professionals rely upon when they engage into the policy process. So in short, citizen lobbying is lobbying by citizens for citizens. Well, you make the point that um, now is a good time for citizens to get to get active. One thing I'm quite intrigued about is you you seem you seem very um, idealistic. You seem to assume that people want to get involved in in representing their interests more alongside their elected representatives. What what makes you think that there's an appetite for getting involved in that way? The book builds upon the experience I gather over the last few years in engaging a new generation of citizens who realize how educated and privileged it is and he wants to somehow give back. So there's a real uh, purpose-seeking journey citizens, in particular young people, are about to embark on. And therefore, this desire has to be captured and channeled into uh, what makes a difference for their life, which is the policy process. So if we manage to beautify government, if you manage to modify the politics that actually determine the quality of the air we breathe for the safety of the food we eat, well, it's going to be much better for society to have an active electoral body instead of having just people showing up every five years in order to give representation uh, to their politician. So I feel that this is the right moment to have citizens to uh, leave their cage of consumers and to become citizens again. You're very clear in the book that it is a part-time activity, it's an activity that citizens' lobbyists would get involved in their spare time. So, and it's almost as if their their lack of professionalism, their not so much amateur amateur approach, but their lack of being professional lobbyists, is part of almost the key definition of a citizens' lobbyist. Is that mm. clear? We live in very educated society. Um, the number of citizens who are entering higher education in Europe is around forty percent. So there are people who are today able to actually contribute to society by tapping into their own expertise and potential, and to do so besides their job. So it doesn't have to become a full-time job. And if you look prospectively, because of automation and artificial intelligence and all the technological revolution that is happening today, it is not too far-fetched to imagine that in the near future we are going to have more time to devote to the quality of our life. And in order to do so, engaging in the policy process actually might be a win-win scenario for both politicians who are going to have uh, active citizens and electors who want to engage into that process and contribute so as to strike a better balance between representative democracies, which is there to stay, and participatory democracy, which today is unfortunately captured by direct democracy movement or self-proclaimed direct democracy movement that tend to be very populist in selling the idea that citizens can actually decide for, for their own life, which is certainly not true. So how we can recover the idea uh, and to relaunch and reinvent representative democracy if not without the citizens? In a sense, citizen lobbying is, is, a, is a better way of approaching uh, policy making and, and making input into policy making than direct democracy is. 
Absolutely. I think what is missing today in the dialectic between citizens and their uh, representatives is a space, which is a very promising space, of engaging in between elections. So today we are still living in a political system that is so old and anachronistic as compared to the way in which we interact on the internet and with our friends that basically leave us to totally alone in a vacuum in the space between elections. But citizen lobbying, in the process I would describe it, might be a nice bridge uh, between the daily lives of citizens, their desires, their preferences, as they do develop instead of crystallized by the political process. Before making the case for citizen lobbying, you, you obviously do a kind of tour d'horizon, uh, an overview of the current lobbying uh, environment, if you like, and you're quite dismissive, you're quite critical of the existing lobby groups, but not just corporation, which is obviously one of your, one of your targets, if you like, but also uh, non-governmental organizations, um, some, some think tanks, some even academic groups. You don't seem to be very impressed by or you seem to be questioning how they go about their own lobbying. Well, lobbying is uh, a legitimate activity. It's an activity that we should actually promote and we are promoting in Europe. You think about the better regulation and the public consultation system in Europe, we are actually opening up the policy process. So regulatory process per se is no longer a top-down affair, but it has become, at least on paper, a bottom-up affair. But unfortunately, if you look at the realities of interest representation in Brussels, in the European space, in the national capitals, and beyond that, you will see that the process has been somehow hijacked by those who are the skills, by those who have the uh, resources to actually engage uh, with policymakers. It's a bit of a paradox. Uh, the major winners of the opening up of the policy process have been the Euro specialists, not necessarily the citizens. And this is not necessarily the fault of those who engage into lobby because they do their job, and I think there are fantastic corporate lobbyists in this city, and think tankers and academics, but the problem is the imbalance in the representation of interests. So we have to make sure that everybody gets a seat at the table, which is not the case today. We have the usual suspect who are showing up, and this inevitably is influencing the process in a way that certain interests are not as represented as they should, therefore making it more difficult for policymakers, those taking decisions, to identify the European public interest. So what is best for everyone? We need to make sure everybody gets a voice, and that's basically the claim of citizen lobbying. A uh, definition you give, what is, what is, you say in your book on page 87, to be precise, what distinguishes, I'm quoting, a citizen lobbyist is her agnostic and pragmatic motivation. What drives her is not the desire to push an ideological agenda, for example, being against free trade, but the desire to address an issue of public concern which has typically been neglected, for example, how to ensure free trade benefits everyone. This is the kind of the corollary of that, is you're quite uh, critical, therefore, of the groups that were uh, engaged around the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership discussion, the TTIP who were very much, uh, at least that seemed to be, very against free trade. Absolutely. I think uh, TTIP and the whole conversation we are having in Europe around uh, free trade uh, shows all the complexities of uh, having a conversation that is disrupting a big assumption, meaning that free trade is good for everyone. And unfortunately, we don't listen enough to those voices who are critical of the process. So I was not necessarily supportive or buying the old critique of TTIP and therefore supporting all what NGOs were saying. 
But at the same time, I'm very sensitive to the claims they were making, and I'm very glad that citizen lobbies like those show up, and they made the whole conversation in the public debate much richer, even though much more polarized. And that's exactly the difficulty, how we can bring on board more voices instead of simply having on the one side the corporations and the other one professionalized civil society organizations who, by the way, might not be very representative of citizens. No, if you look at trade, most of European citizens are actually in favor of free trade. But smaller groups actually have monopolized uh, that particular conversation and they pretend to speak on behalf of the old population when in reality are not actually doing so. So the debate is much more complex than what it looks like. It's certainly not a black and white and there are a lot of circumstances that I claim in the book and I show examples in which actually corporate interest and civil society interests might be aligned. So it is possible to set up unconventional uh, coalitions today in the policy space through which civil uh, rights movements or social movements may actually achieve objectives by leveraging on the abilities and the skills of corporate groups who might share those values. Right. You also say, um, uh, and I'm, I'm throwing some of your quotes back at you, to at least to prove I've read your book. Uh, first, first quote, thanks to the information revolution and the opening up of the policy process, lobbying is no longer the prerogative of well-funded groups with huge memberships and countless political connections. And then later on, on page 37, Alberto, you say, due to the growing weight of the lobbying game, citizens have lost, have lost their prerogative when it comes to collective governance. Maybe I'm missing a point there. Is there a paradox there? That, is there a prerogative that they've uh, forsaken, or is it still there to be grabbed by citizens' lobbyists? No, it's certainly still there to be grabbed. I show that empirically the European Union per se offers many more avenues of participation than the average member state. So the opportunities are there, but they are not seized. Why they are not seized? Because literacy around those channels of participation is very limited, and therefore these tools are underused, even by civil society organizations that are quite professionalized, and this is due uh, to the lack of experience, uh, due to the lack of engagement with tools that tend to be quite technical, unfortunately. They require and they are not necessarily intelligible to, to the many. And therefore, there's a lot of groundwork to be done in order to unpack um, the complexity of the European policy process. So I would like to hear a bit less civil society organization complaining about the EU not being inclusive uh, and having them engage a bit more on the tools that already exist today, which is not actually the case. Well, something I'm quite intrigued about, I know the civil society world, broadly speaking, was very enthusiastic, at least at the beginning, about something called the European, I'm just looking up the reference, European Citizens Initiative, right? Um, and you say, actually, what is, again, I asked you at the beginning of the conversation, do you, what makes you feel there's an appetite for people to become actively involved in this, what you call citizens lobbying? I mean, you say that, uh, just for the sake of our listeners, um, the EC is, a, as you say, the first transnational instrument of participatory democracy in the world. It allows, I'm quoting you here, one million citizens from at least seven member states to invite the Commission to submit a proposal on matters where citizens consider the legal act of the Union is required for the purpose of implementing the treaties. Fine. But then you go on to say, out of 50-plus registered um, ECIs, European Citizens Initiatives, only three have collected the million signatures required, and only one, the Right to Water campaign, led the EU to act. If only three of these, if only 50 have been registered, and those 50, only three have collected the, the required million signatures, doesn't that kind of suggest there's not an appetite for people to get more engaged? Maybe they're just too busy to do other things. Well, the European Citizens Initiative, as it has been designed and as uh, it has been interpreted by the European institutions, does not really allow citizens to take full potential. So they have been disincentivized to actually use it because uh, it is costly. Uh, you need, in average, 80 
100,000 euros in order to launch a campaign that might lead into the ECI. But at the same time, um, what is really missing in our conversation about the ECI and all forms of direct democracy in the European space, that they are a very powerful tool for agenda setting. So what we have learned in the experience is the only fact of registering an ECI enables civil society groups to actually put an issue on the table. Right. And this is the real power of an ECI. And that's what civil society and many citizens that I completely miss out. They start from the ambition. They really believe that it's going to be possible to collect one million signatures. But this is not what is going to make a difference. So we have to look at this tool from a more strategic perspective. And that's exactly what is lacking in the way in which we interpret the channels of participation available and offered by the European Union to be more strategic and less hooked uh, to the instrumentality, to the instrumental nature of, of this tool. Well, let's try and put ourselves briefly in the shoes of policymakers, of people in the European Union context, the people who will be receiving the input from the citizens' lobbyists. And I, I noticed, and I'm not sure, I was intrigued when you you've written also that you're quite dismissive of public consultation, which, is, as we all know, is how the Commission tends to uh, generate policy they have, as you said in your book, the public consultations on the main, main substance of an issue and then also on an, its impact, uh, an impact assessment process. And as you say in the book, uh, public consultations are typically top-down exercises involving a few actors, often well-organized corporate interests, there you are, corporations again, and which fail to engage the groups most affected by the policy at stake. But this is pretty fundamental because that's how that's the, the that's the meat and potatoes of how the European Union, how the Commission in particular, goes about its business. Are you saying that public consultations are a waste of time? Well, public consultations have their own multiple rationales. Um, desk officers, policy officers cannot know how, how an industry works before start regulating it. So they need to gather evidence and they need to get a sense of what the industry expect and what the other stakeholders. Uh, actually expect the Commission to, to propose and the other institution to follow. But the public consultation per se has historically been a top-down exercise because it's about listening and gathering, but it's not about co-creating a policy space, even today. So the problem, the challenge, the dilemma for civil society organization is to what extent are we going to invest our limited resources to take part to these tick box exercises that yeah. are going to legitimize a policy we don't believe in, yeah. which is a very ontological challenge for them. Uh, to what extent should they be part of the exercise or they should rather boycott the exercise? And I think today the Commission is expected to provide more feedback to the people who are actually taking part because there's a lot of cynicism uh, be due to negative past uh, uh, participation into public consultation. And I think there we should become much more creative in making calls for creating mini public citizens' dialogues to identify small groups of citizens who are going to be randomly representing the European population to be involved in the process, coming up with recommendations that might feed into the process in a very advisory manner in order to be more real and to be a bit more outside of the bu bu bubble which unfortunately is still the dominant environment in which we take decisions, and in which we are running exercises that are sold to the public as democratic and representatives, but they are not by definition. As I hinted in an earlier question, I was a bit concerned when I began reading the book, especially given my earlier career, that you're going to be based or black and white about lobbying. So the existing lobbies, as I suggest, suggested in one of my questions to you a few minutes ago, especially corporations were the bad guys, and, and your new band of, of citizen lobbyists were the good guys. But you do say in, in the book that there's no reason why the right cause should not in, unite citizens and corporations to work together to change policy. So not working against each other, but working together. How do you, how, I, well, how reasonable, how idealistic is that? Do you see, can you think of an example, even a theoretical example, where 
your new citizens' lobby band and, and corporations, for example, could work together? Certainly. The objective of the book is to demystify lobbying as an activity that uh, belongs to the few and not to the many. So I want to democratize lobbying by showing that today uh, it is a prerogative of the few, but it could potentially become a prerogative of the many and become democratized. This is important because it allows uh, many people to believe into a process that can really make a difference. That's why most lobbies do their work, because it works, it is effective. Um, so there are many opportunities today in the environmental area, if you think about future challenges as climate change that entail some behavioral change, to have social movements uh, teaming up with corporations who are actually shifting away from, ad ad for instance, uh, conventional to non-conventional sources of energy supply. Or think about the life sciences, certain substances which are on the market that even the industry realize they, can, they don't have a future and have to be withdrawn and therefore there could be a nice win-win um, scenario in which uh, uh, NGOs, environmental NGOs, public health NGOs might team up uh, with, with corporations. So I see plenty of opportunities and there are plenty of examples that I also mention in the book in which these happen. Think about um, BirdLife, this NGO that started working with CMEX, the largest uh, raw material company ever, because they wanted to protect uh, uh, BirdLife. Uh, and of course, there was a nice uh, meeting of mind between these two organizations to work together in a way that the regulatory environment would have protected that value, um, which of course gets into the corporate social responsibility environment, which is changing very, very swiftly, and there's some suspicion in the civil society groups vis-a-vis -vis those kind of moves, but it's possible to create bridges today in order to avoid the polarization that uh, keeps uh, somehow reiterating this idea that is the good lobby and the bad lobby. So our good lobby is not about good versus bad, but it's about enabling everyone to have a voice into the process, and sometimes even working together regardless of our background. A final question, I can't resist asking you about Brexit. Um, uh, Alberto, in the sense to what extent can the, the, some of the tools and the, and the recommendations and the ideas you describe in your book could be applied to the Brexit context in the United Kingdom? I mean, as you know, there's a, the, the main, maybe the majority view or the school of thought is that Brexit is now inevitable, the Article 30 procedure has been triggered by the British Prime Minister, the UK will leave the European Union by the end of March uh, 2019. But as you will, I'm sure, be aware out there, apart from political uh, representatives being more and more vocal, uh, trying to at least get a, a better kind of Brexit, a softer Brexit, if you like. But also there are more and more um, uh, outspoken groups, um, scientists for the European Union, for example, lots of academics, uh, lots of youth groups uh, getting more ex exercise and maybe slightly frustrated because they feel, what I just said earlier, that the, the inevitability of the process is so overwhelming now that they can't do much to, to arrest that process. But do you think any of the tools, any of the ideas in your book could be applied to citizens in the UK trying to in effect, stop Brexit. Absolutely. Uh, Brexit, to me, offers a unique opportunity for citizens to test their newly acquired job description, citizen lobbyists. Uh, I just wrote an op-ed for the new European in the UK is going to come out this week, claiming exactly this point. So Brexit is an opportunity for citizens to shape the process, not necessarily to counter Brexit itself as a process, but to shape the way in which negotiations are going to happen. So we've already been involved, for instance, in the transparency of the negotiations. Already right. in 2016, we lodged a couple of complaints uh, before the European Ombudsman that led uh, the Ombudsman herself to pressurize uh, Barnier team to immediately claim we are going to publish well in advance all the, uh, all the position papers and we're going to engage into this kind of 
uh, process. We know that the UK is trying to do the same uh, by gathering all the ambassadors uh, who sit in London <laughs> with a bit less success. But we need to open up these avenues of participation in order to allow the citizens to actually work with the negotiators along the process in influencing what is going to be the content. First of all, of the withdrawal, because this is what citizens are more concerned about, is about their citizens' rights, of, the, of yeah. the 3 million, 4 million and a half people who are directly involved into this. And then looking into the new agreement that is going to be at some point uh, designed and conceived. So there are a lot of opportunity for citizens to engage, both at the individual and the collective level in right. the Brexit debate. Well, thank you. We have to leave it there. Alberto Almano, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul, for the opportunity. Thank you.